So, all right. Oh, this is the fun one. Fun, fun, fun. Thank you all for coming back. Let's pray and we'll jump in. Father in heaven, we are plumbing the depths tonight. This is just great. Thank you for bringing people. I thank you personally just for giving me an excuse to talk about it. Um, Lord, you had your apostle Paul write uh, that we would have to be strengthened in the inner man by the work of the Holy Spirit before we could ever plumb the depths and the heights and the length and the breadth of your love for us. Lord, we're going to spend the next 50 minutes trying. Uh, I pray that you give us strength, stretch us, and uh, give us the grace to, to really just to get a glimpse of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's do a little, uh, a little hit, uh, recap. So what we're doing here is we're talking about God's sovereign plan over history, right? God is sovereign over everything. And we talked about that the first night, and I talked too long, but um, it's important because the world is going in a direction. And we're going to be, this world is going to last a really long time. And after the resurrection, we're going to come back to it. And so that's why things like creation care really matter. They're important. And, um, and why humans are important. Everything is important. So, but God is moving history in a direction. He has a plan. It's not just random. It's not just kind of out of control. We talked about that the first night, that God uh, is sovereign over all his creatures and all their actions. But in such a way, remember, three, three caveats, to do no correct violence to the will. Good. He, he, does, he, he lets us make our own choices. Uh, and knowing what choices we're going to make, he uh, he directs everything we do knowing that. What a freeing thing, right? How many of you are haunted by a choice you made in the past? God was right there when it happened. And he, he promises to redeem that and to use that for good. Isn't that a freeing thought? So that's, the, that's one of the things. I'll give you a glimpse into what we're going to talk about Sunday. It's one of the many reasons why faith is better than law. Because law, you break the law, and if you're living by law, well, you just screwed up, sorry. And you'll never, ever, ever get over it because you'll never get that chance again. But if you're living by faith, you go, faith, the Lord's going to redeem my mistakes? And he's going to use those for, for good? And it just takes all that burden right off your shoulders. So um, God is sovereign over us, but in such a way not to do no violence to the will also. He is not the blank of blank. He is not the author of sin. He knows that sin is coming. He knows the sins we're going to commit. He could have stopped us, and he didn't, right? Uh, he certainly has the ability to stop us at any point, but he didn't. And he is going to uh, use those, even those sins for his good ends, for his for his purpose over history. Uh, but that sin, we are tempted by sin. The Apostle James tells us, James, the brother of the Lord, tells us that no one is tempted by God. We are tempted by our own desires. We're tempted by our own desires. Temptation can actually comes from within, not from without. All the things outside of us, they have a willing participant on the inside, right? They got a spy on the inside. 
so they you know they they can they have a man in there working on their side that they can call on but it's our own hearts that tempt us to sin so yes god does no violence to the will of his creatures does uh is not the author of sin and contingent things still happen contingently what does that mean it means um God, everything that happens is not a direct miracle from the hand of God, right? I mean, it's, it's not true to say God threw, threw the Bible on that chair. That's not why the Bible's on the chair. I threw the Bible on the chair. If I hadn't thrown the Bible on the chair, it wouldn't be on the chair. And, and I think that's important because a lot of times people struggle to trust God, and they kind of blame him for stuff that they did. You know, kind of like, you know, not studying for a test and getting mad at God that you failed it. Um, or, you know, having a car wreck. And you just want to go, God, really? Why did you do that? He said, you the one, why are you blaming me for you wrecking the car? I'll redeem this. I will use this for the ultimate end of, of redeeming all of history in the world. But you wrecked the car, buddy. You know, like do you, you know, I wasn't in there failing to hit the brakes. I wasn't making you look at your phone. You wrecked the car. I'm going to redeem it and be in it. Uh, and, and that sounds, that may sound like too subtle or, but it, it it's surprising how often it, it, it comes up and people kind of get mad at God for things that, and, and they don't really just understand that. If X happens, Y is going to result every time, every time. Not, you know, if you want to make A's, you study. If you want to not get uh, speeding tickets, drive slower. You know, you don't get mad at God because you got a speeding ticket. But that happens, right? We're like, God, you could have stopped that. Well, he could have. You could have stopped it as well. Drive slower. Duh, right? So, contingent things happen contingently. Sorry, I got the sidetrack. So, then we start talking specifically about God's sovereignty over our salvation. Sorry, talking. I, I got to take one of these out. It's driving me nuts. So, we started talking specifically about God's sovereignty over our salvation. And so we start talking about what has historically been called the five points of Calvinism, right? You with me? And then what would, which one did we talk about last week? So, yeah, but we, re, we, re, we renamed it, remember? <laughs> Total depravity that we have called depravity that we renamed Radical Corruption. Why did I want to rename that? You had the right answer, but you didn't say it loud enough. Every area, oh, so perfect. You nailed that. Yes, sin has affected all of us, every part of us, but every part of us is not as bad as it could be. I think the word depravity just sounds a lot worse than it needs to. Um, you know, because it, it almost gives this sense that we're utterly depraved, we're as bad as we can. And we're not. But we are, we have been radically corrupted. Every part of us, every part of humanity 
has been radically corrupted. Not every part of the earth. The earth is subject to futility until we get our stuff straight. And once we get straight, the earth will be able to be fully what it was. That's happening slowly over time since the crucifixion. Got a long talk about that, but that's not what we're talking about tonight. Um, so what do, I, what do I mean when I say every part of us? What are some parts of us that have been affected by sin? Emotions. Yeah. We get mad about the wrong things. You know? We get happy about the wrong things. And stupidly mad. And stupidly happy. You know, I can point you to people who get fighting mad because the referees missed a call in the NFC Championship five years ago. Like, you're stupidly mad about it, right? They don't care at all about the war in Ukraine. Like, humans being bombed. Doesn't affect me. You know, I got news for you. That touchdown doesn't affect you either. Uh, You know, but our emotions are are messed up. We don't don't get happy or sad or angry about the right things. My emotions are getting messed up again. I'm going to warn you, okay? You remember what I used to be like, how I used to not be able to tell a story without breaking down and crying, and then I started taking medicine. That medicine made me fat, and I stopped taking it last week. So we're going back to skinny crybaby Ricky instead of whatever I've been for the last four years. So just be aware because I wasn't able to get through this the first time this morning. All right, so our emotions have been affected. What else? Our will has been affected. Sometimes, right? We know the right thing to do. I know the right thing to do is to not eat. I, I want to be thinner. I still just can't do it. Just can't do it. Our, our will's been affected. What else? Our mind's been affected. We don't see things the way we ought to see them. The things that make sense to others don't make sense to us. We, we just can't get things through our head. We're blind to the things, especially to the things of God. It just is, we just can't see it at all. And um, I don't know if you've ever watched or read anything about or listened to anything about how hard it is to convince somebody that they're wrong about anything. Like if, if they're already truly convinced that the other side is wrong, you can't change your mind. Really, I mean, it has nothing to do with evidence. Has nothing to do. With, only thing. The only thing that does change your mind is a, is a fairly long-term relationship with somebody who's on the other side of the issue. Um, it should scare you all and <laughs> make you all go, "Hey, what are we wrong about?" Because you're wrong about something. I had a conversation yesterday. It was a little bit of a debate. It was a friendly debate, and uh, he was just shocked that I wasn't coming into his point of view, and I was disappointed in him and not seeing that I was clearly right. And uh, we just kind of looked at each other. I said, well, I believe in total depravity. So one of us, I said, I'm a little bit wrong about everything, right? I'm a little bit wrong about everything. Sin has affected my mind. I'm completely wrong about some things, and I'm a little bit wrong about everything because I have a sinful, I have a, a mind that's being radically corrupted. And then finally, our bodies. And I think it's important that we remember this. I think that's a, a major thing that was just forgotten by the, late 20th century evangelical church that our bodies are fallen. And so uh, things like the, the purity movement left teenagers. We just labored sexual immorality, right? Just, I don't know if y'all remember the 80s, 
But it was like the sin of sins. Like, you don't do that, whatever you do. And these poor teenagers, their body, they're, they're feeling guilty about their bodies being fallen bodies, you know, and the hormones are rushing and they're feeling like they're bad people and shame and guilt and all these things come up because of just, just because of the feelings they have because their bodies are falling. And it's uncool, right? It's like, come on. Really? I mean, if, if there was any justice in the world, you wouldn't have all those hormones till you're like 50, right? It's, it's all backwards. Oh, anyway, um, or whatever age I am at that particular moment. Um, sorry, I got made all everybody blush. All right, so radical corruption. Every part of us is is corrupted, and especially it is corrupted against God. That is the key, the key thing to remember. We come into the world not caring about anybody else and wanting independence. We are against God because God comes to us. He's very gracious and kind, but he never comes to us as anything but God. I mean, that's just, that's how he is, right? And so, he, you, you, and you know that implicitly. If I acknowledge the existence of this superior being, he's going to get my... Uh, service. <laughs> I'm going to be submissive to him, or I just don't acknowledge him. And we hate that idea. And you don't have to teach anybody that. That's the way we live. You come into the world, you're born. You know, you don't say, you know, Mommy, I'm thirsty in here. If it's not too much trouble, would you come feed me in the middle of the night? You know, you come into the world screaming. You don't care that you're waking up people. Um, you want your way. You want to do it your way. It's not just because you're little. It's because you're selfish. You were little and selfish, and then you got bigger, and you were still selfish. And if nobody ever socialized that out of you, you became an incredibly corrupt person. I've got a friend right now. He's been in prison pretty much his whole life. Uh, Mark and I are kind of trying to write out his biography from his letters. And, uh, you know, he was born from a mentally handicapped woman. Uh, she was never uh, had the capacity to take care of him. He was been in foster homes and group homes since birth, and literally since birth, and just never was trained how to live. And he's a mess, and he's forty five right now, and he's been uh, in prison essentially since he was fifteen, one type or other. And he he's a Christian. He loves the Lord. He's a mess, and he just can't stay out of jail. He just can't. Um, he, he was born corrupt. The, the idea of the innocent native, that if we could just not corrupt people by society, is, is inherently a broken idea. It's an idea that's prevalent, right? And every kind of movie that broaches the subject of natives from Dances with Wolves, you know, there's just so much harmony uh, until the, you know, until the white men came and destroyed this. It's funny because... Kevin Costner describes the way they lived as harmony until the time of year when they went out and tried to kill each other. Uh, and it kind of, which is interesting to me, but, um, um, you know, or, uh, what's that James Cameron movie that just came out. Avatar. Yeah. Avatar. Same thing, right? It's, it's, it's civilization that ruins people. No civilization is ruined because it's made up of radically corrupt people. All right. All that's review. All right. If you really believe this, everything else is easy.
right? This is the horse pill. This is the horse pill. If you can swallow this and you really acknowledge what it means that there is nobody seeking after God, there is nobody who is good, not even one, Paul says in Romans chapter 3. If you really believe that, then the question becomes, well, then how could anybody get saved? That's a great question. It's not why doesn't everybody get saved. It's how could anybody get saved? And so now that brings us to the you, right? So, so the you is typically unconditional love. I'm sorry, unconditional grace. Unconditional election. Get it right, Tim. Unconditional conditional election. There's actually nothing wrong with that, but I'm going to change it because it's more fun. Uh, and so we need we needed some vowels that we can make a new word out of. So I like uh, I like eternal love, and I'll tell you why. One election sounds mechanistic. Yeah, so and so is elected. Um, it doesn't have that that intimate sound to it of what we're really talking about here. Um, and I like I like the word eternal because it it communicates that it's always has been and always will be. Eternal is above time. Eternal, it's really important that you get this. Eternal life does not mean that life the way it is right now is going to go on forever. Right? That would be awful. Who'd want that? Uh, eternal life is a whole different quality of life. And it is a life that is beyond and above time. And that's where God lives, is aboveness of time. Um, it is eternal. It is, not, um, it is not bound by time. So uh, that's, that's what I, we're going to go with tonight. And let's talk a little bit about love. Okay? Um, Will played football. And uh, during one of his games... It was um, he was a wide receiver on a team that ran the ball pretty much every play, but he did get a ball thrown to him, and he got uh, had an interception thrown to him. That he both times he dropped both balls, just dropped. Because of that, the game was very close. The other team is driving down nearing the end of the game. They're on like the three yard line, um, but it's fourth down. They got a score. The father, a linebacker of our team, his name is J.T. Broughton. If you want to watch him play, he plays for Utah, cornerback now. Um, and his dad yells out, if you don't make this tackle, you're walking home. After the game, I go to Will, and he's sad about miss, dropping those passes. And I said, I'm sure I'm glad you dropped those passes. I said, you know, if you'd caught those passes, you probably would think that I loved you because you're good at football. Since you dropped them, I can tell you that I love you, and you know this because you're my son. Which is healthier? Which gives security? Which of those two, but none of that happened, by the way. I made all that up. Um, which of those two um, attitudes brings health? It's obvious, right? Uh, we want our children to grow up in a in a uh, atmosphere of love and acceptance and and grace. We know that. 
why in the world do you think God would be less aware of that than you? Why would we ever think that God's love for us would somehow be less healthy than our love for our children? He, we are the ones who are radically corrupt, not him. Right? He knows that. His love for us is eternal. It doesn't depend upon our performance. We think it is, but it's not. Um, and that's one way to think about eternal love. Another way to think about it is um, think about romantic love. Think about the cheesiest, worst love song you've ever fallen in love with. What name? Name one. Muskrat love. Oh my gosh! What's the chorus of that? I don't even know the chorus of that song. What's the chorus of Muskrat Love? Uh, we're going to leave that one behind. Uh, it's a very corny song. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about country songs. Randy Travis. You know, I'm going to love you forever, forever and ever. Amen. Is that true? No, he's not going to love anybody forever. He's going to die. He's a mess. Uh, completely broken human. Um, I think about... Um, oh, the worst of them all, Dan Fogelberg. You know, higher than the stars up in the sky, longer than there's been fish in the sea, I've been in love with you. That's the stupidest song I've ever loved. Like, why would he even say such of a thing, right? Clearly, you have not loved me longer than there's been fish in the sea. That's insane. Why would you even say such a thing? Because we want it. We want it to be true. Uh, and we want it to be true because that's the, the kind of love we are designed for. We are designed for a, a love that is longer and higher and stronger than any human can give us. That is the kind of love that God has for us. Um, it's it starts, uh, you know, the, what do we say? The greatest love of all is, is uh, well, the greatest love of all, according to Whitney, is learning to love yourself. And sadly, she never got that one. But, um, you know, we want, the, the most romantic of all stories is always love at first sight, right? So, you know, that's kind of dumb. I mean, honestly, if you, Bianca says she fell in love with me right when she met me. And that was because that was kind of a, God thing because I was I was a mess, but um, typically you're not going to see somebody, and the second you see them, go I'll follow you to the ends of the earth. Like typically that doesn't happen, right? So what we're trying to figure out now is when did God start loving us? When did He start loving us? I do actually think that I have experienced love at first sight. Now, it was not in 1989 on February 3rd when Bianca and I went on our first date. That was not love. That was not nearly that pure. But on October 11th, 1996, at 5.05 p.m., when I first set eyes on my son, I fell in love. I fell in love with someone who did not know me who looked at me with all the same affection that he looked at the chairs, who tried to pee on me, though I'm ducked, had nothing to offer me whatsoever, 
was going to wreck my sleep, take all my money, wreck my love life, just make a mess of things in general. And I loved it. That is the, that's the kind of love that you have for a child, right? I didn't really start loving him on January, on October 11th. I really started loving him when? Nine months earlier when I first saw that pregnancy test and I knew he was coming. That's what unconditional love looks like. And in the exact same way, God tells us he started loving us not when we were born, not when we made a decision for Jesus, not when we decided that we believed in him. He started loving us when? Before the foundations of the world. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. His love started before the foundation of the world. His love started... uh, Eternally, we did not start this relationship with him. We did not start this relationship with him. We're not sovereign over this relationship. We don't have the ability to end it. He loved us centuries before we even existed to love him, certainly long before we ever made a decision for him. And he promises that he will love us eternally into the future. It's never going to end. It is, it is eternal love. It, it, it began before we were ever even thought of. I, I, love this, um, I love this little quote that I gave you by C.S. Lewis from The Four Loves. I think this is very accurate, and if you let it weigh on your heart, it really actually, every word is important. Um, God who needs nothing loves into existence holy, superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. Why did he love us into existence? So that he could love us and perfect us. He creates the universe already seeing the buzzing cloud of flies around the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the mesial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. If I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites. That's us. Causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. When did God start loving us? Long before creation. And the second he looked at creation, the second he thought about what was going to happen, he saw this. If I create them, things are going to be go badly. If I create them, things are going to go badly. And in order for me to spend eternity with them, I'm going to have to go through the incarnation. I'm going to have to be uh, separated from my son. I'm going to have to see my son sacrificed 
and he thought it was worth it. And he thought it was worth it. Why? Well, uh, there are various reasons, but one of the reasons he tells us um, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, um, but chapter 2 of Ephesians is really the best of them all, I think. Let's start with verse 4. The, verse, the first three verses are about radical corruption, being dead in our trespasses and sins. And then he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And this is fascinating to me. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did he create us? Why did he love us? Why did he save us? He wants to show off the immeasurable riches of his grace. And the only way he can show off the immeasurable riches of his grace is by him creating broken, independent, frustrating, sinful people, and saving them. Now, who's he going to show it off to? I don't know. That's a very weird question. Why would you ask that? I don't know. Maybe the angels. The Hebrews says something about angels kind of being freaked out by this whole redemption story, more or less. That's in the Greek, freaked. Um, you know, I think it's in, I think it's not in Hebrews. You're not, not agreeing with me. It makes me nervous. But one of those New Testament books talks about that. And um, or maybe, I don't know. I don't want to go there. But um, he saves us when? Before, before the creation of the world. Uh, before the foundations of the earth. That's important. I think we make people very, very insecure um, when we teach them that God began to love them when they prayed a prayer. Um, because why? If God... Yeah, if, if it's based on my actions, then I can end it. I can run it. And that's what I don't, I don't think we mean to do it. I don't think we mean to do bad things, but we do. Uh, we teach people that God started loving us when we uh, started loving him. It's terrible and it's wrong, and I think it's very hurt, hurtful. When did God love you? Before the creation of the world. Okay, so why? Why did God love us? <laughs> this is the best one. He loves us because he loves us. Where do you get that idea? He delighted in us. Yes, in Psalm 22. Or Psalm, not 22. 82? I don't know. It's in there. The, uh, there's two great places that where God explains to us why he began to love us. Why he saved us. I've already read one of them to you, but I'm going to read it again because it's really, really good. Ephesians 2.4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Why did he save us? Because he loved us. He saved us because he loved us. That um, makes no sense. He loved us because he loved us. But that's a loop we can't get out of, so that's pretty nice. Uh, there's another passage, in, uh, a similar passage, I would say even parallel, uh, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Um, 
And this is when Moses is getting people ready to go into the promised land. And he's telling them not to get all uppity. God's about to give you a bunch of fields that you didn't plow. You're going to be able to harvest plants that you didn't plant. You're going to live in houses you didn't build. You're going to live in cities you didn't build. Don't get all uppity about it. Interesting. You didn't do anything to deserve this. And then he says, he says, this is why God's doing all that for you. He says, you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all the peoples. Isn't that fascinating? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that God set his love on you and chose you. It's a beautiful sentence. Well, then why is it, Moses? It is because the Lord loves you. That's what it says right there. Why did the Lord set his love on us and choose us? Because he loves us. Um, We've always been his people. I think it's, I think you'll see one of the ways that you can kind of see this in the Bible that is almost never taught is if you'll go back and you look at Genesis 3.15, when God is cursing Satan, he says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed. And uh, we tend to kind of think, you know, make silly applications of that. Like, that's why we don't like snakes. Stupid. Um, It's the seed of Satan and the seed of Eve. There's always been two lines. There's always been two lines. There's been God's people and Satan's people. It's right there in the Bible. I'm not making this stuff up. And the war between those two began immediately when Cain killed Abel. And it will continue until Jesus comes back. And Jesus teaches us about it. He teaches us about it in the parable of the, uh, the, the wheat and the tares, right? He says, he says God planted a field of, of good wheat, and the enemy came in and planted weeds. The God's people and, and Satan's people, the two lines. They've all, it's always going right through the Bible. But why did God set his love on us? He set his love on us because he loves us. He loves us because he loves us. That is a beautiful spiral that you can never get out of. It's a beautiful spiral. He can't help himself. That's why he created you, so that he could love you. And, and, and that settles in on you. It, it, it overwhelms you with, his, with grace and the security to let you just kind of be and, and live without fear, without regret. Um, without anxiety, because the Lord, who's got a sovereign plan over all of history, loves us with a love that we didn't start, and we frankly don't have the power or the permission to end. That's that's a good thing. That is how history is working. So, if He loves us, let's talk about a few of the objections real quick. Um. The standard of good night, I've been talking a long time. Um, the standard objection to unconditional election is that God looks forward in time and he sees what? 
Yeah, he sees that we're going to choose him, so he chooses us. Um, that's, I mean, honestly, first of all, that makes no sense. Um, God's the actor in history. Choosing us because he, we chose him, is a, it's an impossible spiral if you even try to apply it to life. But the other thing that's, that's wrong with that is what? Nobody chooses him. Nobody chooses him. How many people are seeking God? How many people are doing good? Not even one? No, not even one. Nobody is seeking good. Nobody is seeking after God. So, if, like I said, if you get this one down, the rest of it kind of just flows because it's got to be God's fault that people are getting saved because it can't be ours because we don't want to be saved. We want to be left alone. That's what we want, right? So God saved us before the He loved us before the foundation of the earth. He said it. He loved us in Jesus before the foundation of the earth. That tells you that the whole thing was already planned out. We were elect in Christ before the foundation of the earth. So you know, it's not like the cross was Plan B. It was always Plan A. Because He loves us. Because He loves us. And that raises up another question. Well, if you don't do anything to earn it, then you can do what? I can go sin all I want, right? I can do anything I want to do because I can't, I can't wreck his love for him, for us. And, um, that is a very common, uh, objection. And I just want to show you that God saved us for a purpose. Um, why, why, what did God save us to? If you joined this church, at one point you were given a little questionnaire had four questions on it that I came up with in 2005 and we're still using today, more or less. And uh, one of them is, what do, you, what do you think salvation means? What are you being saved from is the way I, I used to ask it. Still ask it if I ever, you know, get to have a one-on-one conversation about it. What do you think you're saved from? And a typical answer is hell, right? We don't... Um, in an effort to make evangelism as simple as possible, we we broke the whole thing down into kind of one sentence. Um, if you don't trust Jesus, you're going to hell, and if you do, you get to go to heaven. And while those things are more or less true-ish, they're not really true. That's not what God saved us from. It, it leads us to a, a completely wrong mentality. What has God saved us from? What does the Bible say God saved us from? Our sin. He saved us from our sin. Hell is a result of a life of sin. It's not just, oh, you made this one wrong decision. Hell is a a punishment uh, for the sins committed in the flesh. But look what God... uh, he predestined us too. Every time you see the word predestined or chosen in the New Testament, it's always chosen to something. And it's usually something like this. He predestined us. Oh, sorry, start with the wrong verse. Verse 4 of chapter 1. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. His love is not impotent. It does something. It changes us. Um, you know, Romans 8, everybody loves Romans 8, nobody reads Romans 9. 
Uh, you know, all things work together for the good of those who love Christ, those who have been called according to his purpose. Uh, for those whom he foreknew, he loved. The word knowledge in the Bible is not simply a bare ascension of facts. It's a it's a loving word. Adam knew Eve and she had babies. And Abraham knew Sarah and she had babies. The word knowledge in the Bible is a very intimate, uh, relational word. When God, those whom he foreknew, he predestined in Romans eight twenty nine. Predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. Uh, Peter, First Peter, uh, is a is a is a uh, letter to the church, right? And he talks about our election. He begins it talking about our election, and he says, um, "Blessed be the guest." Not what I'm looking for, but it work because it always works because it's always in here. See, I looked at the wrong verse, but it still says what I wanted it to say. Uh, to those who are the elect, exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. The question, again, is not... Um, let me restart this sentence. My campus, uh, the campus minister I worked for about one year out of college, first year out of college, his name was Fred Harrell. Fred gets a phone call at three in the, or two in the morning from a college student named Jackson Walker. can't believe I remember that. Uh, Jackson... Very intense, dude. Fred pick up, picks up the phone. Jackson goes, Fred, do you believe in predestination? For some reason, Fred has wits about him. And he said, I don't know. What do you think it means? Well, that means that God's going to bring some people to heaven no matter how they live, and other people, no matter how much they want to be with God, get shut out. I don't believe that. Click. <laughs> yeah, it's two in the morning. But... <laughs> Um, but that's that's a very common misconception. God, uh, this idea that God has given the stiff arm to all these people who want in, they want to come in, and he's telling them, no, you can't come in. What's wrong with that picture? Nobody wants in. Nobody wants to go to heaven because God's there. They want to go to the fantasy land of their own dreams. You know, they want to go to an eternal tropical paradise where they never get sunburned or get bitten by mosquitoes. But they don't want to be in a place that's God-dominated because they don't want to be with God. They don't like Him. They're not seeking after Him. They're not looking for Him. They're trying to get as far away from Him as they can. That's one uh, one uh, pretty common definition of what hell is, is when God just gives people what they want. You want to be as far away from Him as you can? All right, take off. And also go into outer darkness. Because that's where they want to be. Um, that is very consistent with Revelation, right? When God appears in the sky, and what do, what do all the people of the earth do who aren't his children? They flee into the mountains and they say, fall on us. We don't want to see that. All of his people gather to him because that's what we want to see. Um, so where did I get off on this? I don't know why I got on this at all. But God chooses us to holiness. The, qu- the thing is not, um, we're not, our holiness is not what attracted God to us. The, the question is, what makes you want to be holy? And the answer is, God's work in your heart. We love Him because He loved us. We loved Him because He loved us. 
think about that for a second. You're all relatively sane people. Relatively. Give me the benefit of the doubt. You know, you believe in math and science. You're not, you know, living in cabins high off in the woods, escaping from reality. You're you're here, you're part you're responsible members of society. You're smart, relatively normal human beings. And you believe in this invisible God who is everywhere all the time. You talk to him. You give money to him. You let him direct your life. A God you've never seen. That's weird. Why in the world would perfectly sane people act that way? Because God has revealed himself to us. Because he has loved us and opened the eyes of our hearts. We would never have dreamt that up. That's crazy. We're not talking to ourselves when we pray, though. And we know we're not because he's revealed himself to us. We, we do those things not to make God love us, but because God loved us and has revealed himself to us. There's, there's so much more to say about this. Um, it, it, unconditional love or election or predestination, they're all the same thing. It, doesn't, it means that there's nothing in us that attracts God to us, but God loves us and therefore makes us attractive. Um, that is the, the true story of God's love for us. You see it in the example of all him calling all of his people, not just Christians, but everybody all through history. Abraham was not seeking after God. Abraham was just living his life in Ur of the Chaldees. And all of a sudden God came to him and said, Hey, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Follow me. Um, Isaac, before Isaac was born, Abraham's pleading with God. God comes back to Abraham. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Sarah's going to have a child. Nah, come on. She's too old. I'm not even attracted to her anymore. Just please accept Ishmael. And God says, no. Through Isaac, your people will be blessed. Isaac wasn't even born yet. He names him. So what did Isaac do to earn all that? Nothing. He didn't even exist yet. Sarah wasn't even pregnant yet. Um, Jacob was running away from God. Um, running away from his brother. He did everything wrong. He stole. He lied a lot. Um, and God saved him out of nowhere. And just to make sure we understood that it was God who did it, he had a twin brother who got uh, nothing. And there's some, there's some pretty tough like adult Bible passages about him in Romans, uh, Romans 9, but uh, you probably need to read them. Moses, living out, had gone out in the wilderness. He, he kind of thought he was special. He thought it was a big deal, right? You know, he's Hebrew, brought up in, the, in Pharaoh's house, and he knew all the languages and the rules, and he was a big shot. And so he decided he was going to save Israel by killing an Egyptian. And all the Israelites rejected him, and he got scared. He ran off the wilderness for a long time. And he wasn't like asking himself, is it time for me to go back and save my people? He was fine. God shows up through a burning bush. That makes sense. All of the disciples, Jesus is very clear in John 6. Uh, he, he preaches what I laughingly call the worst sermon in all of history. Jesus preaches to 5,000 people, and they all go, you're crazy. He says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they say, 
you're crazy. And they all go home. And he looks, he has 12 people left. He, he, he shrunk a church from 5,000 to 12 with one sermon. And he looks at them and he says, so here's your chance. You going to? And Peter says, we've got nowhere to go. You have the words of eternal life. And he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And um, and even and then he goes on to talk about Judas, which is strange. Paul, Paul was not only was he not seeking after God, he was seeking to kill God's people, having them imprisoned. God shows up in the will in the desert, body slams him, says, "Stop doing that." And he says, "Yes, sir." And the rest is history. But read the story of Roman of, of Paul's testimony. Right? He 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 he's trying to prove how. Good of a Jew he was. He says, I was zealous in persecuting Christians. You know, he talks about that in Galatians 1, then 1 Timothy uh, 1, that precious, precious verse. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that God came to the world. Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Um, anyway, I gave you all these verses to, to think about and to meditate on. And I want you to understand that this is not something I came up with or John Calvin came up with. Um, and I don't want you to believe it because it's beautiful when you want it to be true, but you do. You want it to be true. I want you to believe it because the Bible clearly teaches it consistently, not just in one or two places, but from Genesis, at worst, Genesis 6 on, but really from, you know, Genesis 1. Okay? Thank you for coming. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, thank you for loving us with a love that we did not start and we cannot end. Pray, Lord, that you would just give us a fresh appreciation for the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've got more of these outlines up here if you want them.